Welcome back to At Source, a community conversation that gets to the origin of matters that affect us the most. I'm your host, Kieran Cook, and together we'll be diving into health and wellbeing, gaining useful insights direct from the source. Grant Schofield is a Professor of Public Health at AUT and Director of the University's Human Potential Centre. He has been a TEDx speaker and co-authored the widely selling books What the Fat, addressing the widespread fear of fats and the overconsumption of carbohydrates. Throughout the course of his career, he has sought to educate the public on challenging their approach to health and provide lifestyle solutions for people to implement that can prevent chronic disease. In this episode, we chat about everything from reframing our understanding of health to cold water immersion. Thanks, Grant, for joining me today on the At Source podcast. And uh, I have enjoyed, I've done a little bit of research into some of the things you've been talking about, and I can see that you are a bit of an expert on a few topics, actually, um, in all things health, sugar, nutrition, public health, and ultra-processed food, and... um, the benefits of cold water swimming. So let's dive right into it, okay? As a professor of public health, which is a large field, um, what is it about your job that makes you get up in the morning and have you always been interested in understanding health? Oh, yeah, thanks for having me, Karen. Uh, Well, let's do the second one first. I've always been interested in health. Yeah, I think I've always been interested in humans, um, their physiology and psychology. So I suppose that's, health. Uh, I, I was a bit sidetracked by high performance when I was younger than uh, which you tend to do. And as you get older, you get more and more interested in well-being, I suppose. And then also the things that you know, are going to give you a long and healthy life. Your health health mm. span is what I'm supposed I'm interested in now. Uh, what gets me up in the morning? I think uh, I really have this passion for not immortality, but actually totally understanding our mortality and going, can we match our, our age span to our health span? So can we have a, it seems to me in a time where we've never had more resources as a species, we've, we've done so much. Why do we still struggle to not match how long we live with, how long, how healthy we are? So I suppose my ultimate dream is that, uh, is that while we all die, that we only have a very short period of time, if at all, where we our health can go quickly downhill and, and that's the end of us. And I, and I saw that actually as a really interesting thing in some of the work I did in the remote South Pacific with the World Health Organization. You'd be in these villages and yeah, provided you made it through childhood and, and into adulthood, which is no mean feat, uh, then you're probably going on to your mid-70s or, or early 80s in those islands and people would mostly have what we would call an idiopathic death which is sort of a weird thing, but you'd be pretty healthy. You'd be working in the community, part of it right up until the last minute. And for one reason or another, your health would just go rapidly downhill over a week or two. Uh, and that would be the end of you. And I, I sort of feel like that's what we could be talking about more and aspiring to as a society is, is this health span. So that's really what gets me going. Do you think we're living longer, though? I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like we are. Oh, yeah, we're definitely living longer, but but the question is how long do we have, the, what's the mismatch between living longer and the human uh, healthy life years? And you know, in New Zealand and Australia, that's probably between 12 and 13 years that we can expect mostly at the end of our life to be disabled, and a third of those years will be disabled needing care. 
of other people just to get around your daily business. And you know, that's that's what hasn't kept pace. We've, we've, we've sorted a whole lot of things that allow, allow us to have a longer life, but not necessarily a better life. Okay, so if we're looking at optimal lifespan, and you use the word lifespan, mm. so if we look at optimal uh, living, what sort of decades are they? And then what what would be, I use that scary word, disabled. So what would be that sort of disabled lifespan? Let's look at that. Well, yeah, we were down... 12 or 13 years. So you could, if you, if the average lifespan is around 82, then you can expect 70 years of of decent life. Um, and you know, especially that last decade to be you know, not so well, which I think is you know a real shame. Um, mm. Obviously, punch your punch away with some ill health before that as well. Okay, so if you're somebody who's active um, and moves every day or moves you know, three or four times a week where movement's been sort of factored in, in daily life, do you think that that last decade you could erode some of that away? Yeah, totally. Well, in fact, um, almost all of it. So the, the I'm not sure about the metrics you just mentioned, but we know that the fittest uh, quarter of the population have an extra 10 years disability-free than the least fit quarter. So, yeah, that's a pretty well-known thing in public health. Uh, okay. And health. Yeah. So, does it give me give me like a living example? Are you saying that somebody who who's eighty or or seventy might live a relatively disabled free ten years? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, a good example is an actual study that that was started in California in 1980, and they had 500 two groups of 500, and they were pretty much matched for health at that age, health and other demographics, uh, but. And both groups actually met the minimum benchmark on average for for being active at 30 minutes a day. But the one group was actually pretty active. Uh, they was actually members of a running club. I'm not saying running's the cause sure. of this in many ways. It might have been a thing. But they were fitter, a lot fitter. Yeah. And yet that, at, at 22 years of follow-up, you see that, um, you know, obviously people in both groups had died, but it was it was 35% of the non-running group had died versus 12% of the of the runners had died, so I guess mortality is yeah. better. But but you know if you're dead, you won't really know. So what about their quality of life? Well, well, over that 22 years, the runners group had an extra 12 years disability free on average. I mean, it's a massive oh, effect. It's right? huge, yeah. So that, yeah, that, that's worth, worth taking note of. That's actually a pretty compelling statistic. Uh, so if we're sort of speaking of getting up and moving, I mean, many of us do spend a lot of time being sedentary. And the really nice thing about the At Source podcast is that we sort of do a deep dive into all sorts of topics. So we, we talk about nutrition and fitness and high performance um, and, you know, you know, healthy eating and wellness in the round and, you know, mental health. So, so right now you and I are sort of talking about being active and we're yep. talking about, you know, you know, many of us being sedentary. I mean, can you speak to some of the science about how this sort of impacts our bodies if we are sedentary? And, you know, what about people who work in offices, for example? Um, you know, what can people sort of do about it? How do you sort of kickstart somebody who might be sort of um, living quite a sedentary life? And I think COVID, right, and, and working from home and being a lot more confined, I think mm -hmm. many of us probably tried to solve the home gym problem but I mean even getting gear was really hard I tried to rent a bike I eventually, I eventually got one um, yeah. and eventually got some weights but it was really hard even setting up a home gym so um, what's your advice for people who either a are living a sedentary life and b really need to kind of do something about it well I think it's worth 
That's a great question. I think it's worth taking a step back in history just to think about a little bit about the way we're hardwired. And you know, really, for the most of the time we've been on the planet, we've we've been trying to conserve energy because, first of all, food wasn't always in high supply, uh, and we had to probably be quite active to get hunt for our food. Yeah, hunt for these animals. So, yeah. so, so conservation of energy. Yeah, for the most part, even when we have have been in agriculture for the last ten thousand years, for the most part, we needed to rest. And so you really think of the idea of having to just go and you know, specifically exercise and do work to get yourself fitter as being, I don't suppose, a post-World War II concept. So it's a pretty recent idea that this has even happened. Mm. So I think, you know, people think, oh, I'm lazy, I can't be bothered. Well, yeah, it's in your genes. It's, that's all of us. We conserve energy. Uh, and then we've increasingly invented this information world where we can just sit around and somehow, bizarrely, get paid to actually sit in a chair and click buttons, which is sort of weird, but yeah. you know, I guess that's the way, the way the world works. <laughs> tap, tap, uh, tap, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 you know, I sort of feel robbed in a bit. I look at yeah. farmers and builders, yes. those sorts of active professions, go, oh, at least you must feel like you've Earn a day's living, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so that's disappeared. And, and then what we've started to understand is that it's not so much sitting and conserving energy, but it's the unbroken sitting that, is probably the major problem. So this idea of sedentary behaviour, they call it, is that I mean, what we've discovered is that even if you're sitting for just an hour and a half or two hours of unbroken movement, then you start to get gene transcription changes and and you know proteins expressed you know in every cell in the body around uh, the way that you store fat, the way that you metabolise and use glucose. And that's really and, interesting. I'm sorry, it's science speak. So gene transcription changes. Can you just Make that easy for people to understand. Well, your body, even after an hour and a half, is going. Well, this, I, I'm not. This isn't. You know, I'm, I'm going to downregulate. Right. This, this body's sitting around too much. Why would yeah. I waste resources on, you know, this muscle stuff and yeah. these things? I might as well just go and, you know, any extra resources, I might as well store them. If there's any muscle, I might as well just start to waste it away a bit. So we're okay. we're very good at adapting to the environments, and we mm. start doing so really quickly. And it's amazing that. If you just sit around for an hour, hour or two, that that starts to happen, and yes. you, you do that eight hours a day for, yeah. for for three decades, then you know you've got a very different organism, you, than one that was out there farming or building or something. Really bad for the eyes too, just staring at a screen all day and headaches. Oh, and... Yeah, I'm no expert on that, but there's there are studies on that about just you know getting up in the morning, going out and you know focusing on the distance and, yeah. and what that can do for you. Yeah, that's right. I've heard of, I've heard about that, and I have had jobs throughout my sort of illustrious career where I have sort of stared for too many hours at the at the computer screen, and I have personally suffered some fallout from that. So I think we aren't designed to kind of sit. I don't think still. It's really interesting you talk about that 90-minute um, kind of threshold. So I think anybody listening today to our podcast, that's just a little sort of glimpse, isn't it? A little insight that they can actually, you know, get up, move around after 90 minutes and do something, even if it's a cup of tea, right, or a cup of coffee or a walk down to the local to pick up yeah. something to break that cycle to get the body moving again. Yeah, I, I ended up doing, we've done a few studies on this. We've done did one member one within New Zealand where we designed our own new desks from scratch and we just made all of the desks at standing height. Yeah. And we had stools, but these stools were actually not very comfortable. They weren't well designed. They were sort of square with hard edges and uh, you can sit on them, but you get a bit uncomfortable after a while and mm. sort of, I, I was calling it the anti-ergonomic desk. It was the exact opposite of being comfortable for ages. 
Um, and you get quite good results with that. People stand a, an extra hour or so a day, but um, they still sit. But the broken time of, of between sitting and standing is, is yeah. so much more. And well, people you, do report having more energy. Oh, yeah. I mean, apparently you burn more calories standing and working. Yeah. And, I mean, I worked for a startup for a while and we, we were in this really cool sort of co-shared workspace. And it was the thing to do to actually kind of crank your desk up and stand up and work and then wind it down and sit. And um, all the tech guys were sort of doing that because I think they were just pretty tired of sitting on their backsides all day just developing code. So they were sort of like really good at winding up and winding down. Um, hey, you hear some pretty interesting things like people that – well, I think it's a little crazy, but I'm interested in your perspective on it. People that sort of try and fit a week's worth of movement into the weekend or, um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think I already know the answer to this, but I'm just interested in your thoughts. If you're sort of working Monday to Friday like a dog and you aren't, aren't really able to get out much to the gym or, you, you know, I don't know about you, but I can't really work out late at night because I lie in bed sort of, mm. you know, with a high heart rate and can't Agreed. sleep. So, I mean, can you kind of make up for that in the weekend and go for a big endurance bike ride or do other things to sort of make up for I, I, that? So, yeah, it's a good question. I suppose I think about them as different behaviours, really, that sort of not being sedentary and breaking, that's not really getting fit. It's mm. just not be, not sitting around. So that, that's that's the whole thing. And in many ways, you think of that as being independent from uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, which is the sort of thing you get from an endurance bike ride or a high-intensity exercise session or something and and you know in many ways that, that they're just different things and i don't yeah. think they should be pitted, pitted against each other um that they're, they're independently good or bad for you depending on how you do them so there's you know getting fit on the weekend bring it yeah uh sitting around all week nah not so much yeah that, that's like comparing apples and pears and i mean and then the same yeah. thing is that you can't sort of out train a bad diet and that's something i've sort of learned over the years personally is that you yeah. know because i'm somebody that moves every day but, I mean, if you don't sort of have, you know, discipline around your food, um, you know, it's sort of like digging a hole and then sort of popping earth back over the top of the hole, right? <laughs> Somebody wants yeah, to sort yeah, of well, say well, that. Although in this whole thing that you're examining, there, there is a sort of reverse causality that I think is possible. So I, I tell you about another study where they studied office workers and they're all at just normal seated-type desks. And what they noticed is that the exact same office, that, that the lean people tended to get up about 40 times a day and accumulated mm. about an extra five kilometres of walking around the office. Wow. And the people who were who had real problems with the weight, the obese people, if you want to call them that, um, didn't do that. And uh, I think, you know, no amount of change in the environment does much there. So there's also a sort of a alternative reverse explanation. You know, both of these are likely to be true, right? But <laughs> You know, when, when you get insulin yeah. resistant uh, and you get another condition called leptin resistance, then, mm. then there's a whole feedback from, um, you know, extra fat tissue and high glucose and insulin that actually also down-regulates your propensity to get up and walk around. So so you've sort of got you've got things getting you both ways. So while you can't outrun a bad diet, uh, uh, a bad diet can, can, can make you want to sit around more. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's sort of a symbiotic yeah. thing. Um, yeah. But I have to say, just being a bit cheeky here, five k is one hell of a distance to be able to kind of ring around an office during a working day. <laughs> well, they just get up and they just, they yeah. just, they just, uh, yeah, I know. It's, it's astonishing. It is quite a lot of k's because I mean, I, I push out five k a day on a treadmill, fast walking, like hyperventilating, and I know the effort that I put in to sort of <laughs> smash that out. So that's actually uh, pretty impressive. But I think. Um, 
I think there's just something in it to, to you know, be mindful when you are working, not to be sort of sitting all the time. Now, yeah. this is my favourite topic here to, to sort of thrash around with you today is cold water immersion. And um, I I really wanted to have a cold shower before I came to talk to you today. I want, What I wanted <laughs> to do today, and the plan was, was to come home after the gym and to turn the tap to cold and to go cold and not utter a word, not, not to screech, not to scream. And I'm just going to share a little experience I had. I've just come back from Australia and this young millennial was in the changing rooms with me and she was sitting in a really hot sauna and then she jumped into a cold shower and she shrieked like Jesus, Mary and Joseph for about, <laughs> I'm not kidding, probably two minutes. And I was awkwardly drying my hair and the sounds that were coming out of the shower cubicle were I mean, they weren't just shrill. They were sort of something from another planet. And I was sort of awkward. I didn't know whether I should just leave the bathroom and just leave her to it. <laughs> it was like far from zen. And I've watched you take a plunge um, and take a puna and you've all the nasal breathing and the quiet and the still. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is far from what you're talking about, her reaction. Um, and it, it just gave me the shivers and I thought, I just don't know if I can actually do it. And when she got out and she calmly got dressed, I said, how was that for you? And she said, oh, it was really intense. And I said, do you do that regularly? And she said, well, I do because she says, me and a whole lot of mates, what we do, and she's an Aussie, she said, we get all these ice, um, these, you know, those bear freezers and I said, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. She said, Well, we all we all have these bear freezers at home and we just chuck a whole lot of ice in them and we get into them up to our shoulders. She said, it's just a thing that all us young people are doing at the moment. And I was like, Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so so it's interesting because this this seems to be a bit of a thing and there seems to be a bit of traction around it. And I know that you're um, somewhat recently an advocate of the practice because you had some students who I think came to you, didn't they, with some research and you were sort of like, yuck, I'm not sure if this is really a thing. Um, so I'm interested in hearing a little bit about the benefits um, as well as the sort of physical process and mm -hmm. just sort of I know there's some psychological benefits to it. You've expanded a little bit with Radio New Zealand and some a little on YouTube Um so, should we just sort of start with some of the benefits? Well, yeah, I think let's just talk about that where you're at and where I'm at. Like I started where you're at, at least, if not further back. Uh, oh, I don't know. I'm pretty. Sh I'm pretty shrunken back. I'm pretty. Oh, I'm pretty oh, recessed. I, I, like, <laughs> I, I hated cold water. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, in the middle of a New Zealand summer, I'd go. Only swimming in the sea in a wetsuit, for goodness sake. Yeah. You know, um, yes. this, is, this is how pathetic I was. Uh, and, yeah, you're right. A few of my students, the younger ones especially, it's really on point with them, that the sort of communities that a lot of these yes. guys and me frequently talking about this. My wife came and said, we're going to do it. I was like, oh, no, do we have to? Yeah. Uh, I remember that, still remember a couple of years, the first time I went in a cold uh, – well, I actually tried it with a shower. Yeah. I, I have some – to me, the shower bit's a bit like bungee jumping. There's some built-in neural feedback system that allows me to not put the cold shower onto me because I've got a choice with it. So, yeah. So so the shower thing's not a thing for me. It's just like it's – I was just not it's too easy it. to opt out. You yeah, just – you're going to gonna just turn the faucet to the right and change it up. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I – Went in a cold pool to start with. I lasted about 30 seconds, screeched, jumped out, freaked out, sympathetic nervous system overload, fight or flight, the whole mm. thing. Uh, and I decided that was pretty pathetic. So, 
I looked into it a bit more and you know, the techniques really are that if you can breathe a bit more through your nose gently, then you sort of override, that's the manual override for the, the fight or flight system. So you don't really get that anxious reaction. Hmm. And um, yeah, you go through a bit of pain. I'd also done some work with the SAS soldiers, the, the especially the divers. And they, like you were saying, they had these uh, chest freezers at home and they'd put them on a timer fill them up water, put them on timer a couple of hours a night, and we'd be down at like seven or eight degrees, and they'd just chill out on them. Uh, how long for? Yeah. Oh, like 10 minutes or so, oh. just, you know, that sort of thing. And then, then then, I started looking at the physiology, and the physiology really is profound. And it fits into the broad category of, of, of the, I guess the idea is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, mm. which I probably is doing a little bit too much uh, justice, but... Yeah, the same way exercise, the mm. stress of exercise yeah. that allows you to adapt, then, then that process called hormesis um, is the exact same thing you get from the stress of cold. So you, you end up upregulating your fat to be, you know, from brown fat, uh, from white fat to beige fat to brown fat. This brown fat's like a little mini internal heater. So your body's adapting to, to provide this extra warmth, um, which is a stunning thing when you get used to being in the cold, once you get in and you start to get a bit cold, then you get this sort of glowing, beautiful inner warmth feeling coming through, which is a brown fat engaging. Do you, and, do you think, though, yeah. like, I mean, I'm somebody who's always cold, like I've got really cold fingers and toes all the time. That's a condition yeah. in itself. And I'm, I'm always, you know, cold, like even... When it's not that cold, I'll be the one going, you know, and all I want is something hot to jump into. Like, I can do extreme heat. I, I'm like the last kind of European person sitting in that extreme hot pool, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody well, else. Well, yeah. that, that's, that's good for you as well, for, for, you know, because it engages similar physiology. But I honestly, I think that, that this cold adaptation and the sort of metabolic changes you get actually make you a bit more cold resistant which is a thing. And I often reflect back and you read historical novels, you know, people getting around the Scottish countryside in, in the 1500s or something. Uh, you know, pe people aren't in air-conditioned buildings. You know, they're sleeping in the heather with a cloak overnight. And, you know, people have done yeah. that for, for millennia and been fine. And I think we, we get much better at that. And, us, you know, in many ways our comfort um, makes us less resistant to discomfort. Mm. And, and so, see, I, I've found that I'm much more resistant to cold. And I'll go for a bike ride in the middle of winter now with just my shorts and T-shirt on. <laughs> that, that that never would have been a thing yeah. uh, for me, of course, I think. Come that. But uh, the other benefits, I think I think there's two for, for brain health in particular. Uh, I think it's such a good, easy way to learn to manage the physiology of anxiety. No one looks at cold water. I, I don't care who they are. No one looks at cold water and goes, that'll be fun. Hmm. Like you're naturally anxious about <laughs> it. When you first jump in, you get that fight or flight response. Hmm. And just there's such a, a, a normal thing to have, but it's also what normally happens in life to a lot of people. And just the tool to overcome that is a really good thing, just to manage that that stress response. Is there uh, Are there any benefits like in terms of like prevention for, uh, you know, Neuro pathways like healing for dementia or Alzheimer's, or well, I, I, I think there's huge potential there, it needs to be studied more. But we know that when you get cold, you are able to remove the, the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate, which is a really important neurotransmitter. But when it's too high, it seeps out and it's toxic and it's implicated in Alzheimer's and dementia, amongst other psychiatric 
issues. Mm. And so the ability to remove glutamate, and, and it's also implicated in traumatic brain injury, for instance. So this is one of the reasons that, you know, when with with damage to the brain, an often effective treatment is to induce hypothermia with people. And we do that in New Zealand with, with uh, hypoxic episodes when kids are just born, okay. uh, often with heart attacks when people suffer right. um, a lack of oxygen to the brain and they, we, we, we put them in hypothermia and we also infuse them with magnesium, which, which helps uh, antagonise the receptor. So this whole pathway um, is also um, really useful at that, at that hard clinical end. And I think it's got a lot of potential to be studied further in this. Mm. So, I, I, I'm yeah. a real fan of it. So are you actually working in that space at the University of Auckland and doing some clinical trials? At, at AUT, I'm not, I've got a couple oh, of yes. master's students wanting to start at that um, at the moment. And, uh, yeah, I, I'd love to start a, a full clinical trial. So Yeah. I mean, that would be really valuable uh, research, right? Is it is this an area that's sort of well-funded at a government level or um, is, is this something that AUT would get in behind? Yeah, I think that's why you need to have student and master's and PhD projects to get these things going. I mean, you know, the, without being too cynical about modern medicine, it, it's driven by drug discovery yeah. uh, and drug trials. Yeah. And, you know, while you can get money from the Health Research Council and stuff compared to the sort of money you need to bring these treatments to market, um, it's quite a different proposition. Mm. So we we chip away at those in science. Yeah, you know, I, I I think I don't think people who aren't in it realise how broken medicine is. So far as you know, concentrating on literally the endless at the bottom of the cliff, treating mainly by drug and pharma, other pharma, yeah, pharma That's right. sort of stuff yeah. compared to lifestyle. So you know, really. yeah, not a lot of money getting poured into sort of preventative action. It's almost like, as you say, you know you know, fund the drug, fund the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Yeah, well, I mean, all of our mental health and metabolic problems, we tend to go down that route. Actually, there's a there's a friend of mine, Dr. Matthew Phillips, who's a neurologist at the Waikato Hospital, who's pretty well published for his trials that he does around uh, fasting and low-carb keto and stuff to do with various neurological things, Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. uh, Parkinson's, and you know, even... Uh, Blastoma, brain cancer, these sorts of things. Mm. Um, he talks very coherently about the debate that took place in the late 1860s between Louis Pasteur, who was, you know, coming up with bacteria and penicillin and all that stuff, and another Frenchman, uh, Antoine Beauchamp, who had a different view on that. It goes, well, you can kill all the pathogens you like, but it's really the state of the host that that is the problem because clearly everyone's exposed to these pathogens and not mm. everyone succumbs. Mm. So that became germ theory versus terrain theory. Mm. And, and you know, modern medicine's followed germ theory to its bitter end, really. Mm. Uh, and the idea of the the health of the host being an important thing, this terrain theory is something we've lost. And I think, you know, we talk about cold, we talk about exercise, and hopefully we'll talk about food a bit today. Yeah. Um, those, all, those all modify the... the the terrain of, of the organism, and, yeah. you know, that's you, a human. So we've sort of lost our way, I think, with medicine by, you know, mm-hmm. follow. Obviously, there's we've learned a lot from antibiotics and and 
germs and viruses and pathogens, but it's not the whole answer. No. I mean, um, our chief science officer at um, NatureB is very anti-antibiotics in principle mm. and would only, you know, use antibiotics in a case of where it was sort of almost life-threatening. Otherwise, mm. would say that our immune system would need to effectively, you know, learn to combat um, those those viruses or illnesses. I mean, what are your thoughts around antibiotics? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously they provide use, but so many other levels they do harm. You carpet bomb your microbiome. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, is one thing. They You end up getting resistant to these things. So when you really need them, hmm. uh, uh, I, I think, you know, more broadly and sort of what to do with viruses and bacteria in general, uh, I mean, COVID's been a, 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 a very brutal experience of this is that, you know, over this two and a half years we've had this, that there's been, it's all about avoiding the virus, avoiding the virus. What about getting fitter and stronger and being resilient? And especially when we know there's data, clear data showing the healthier you are, the better you can control your glucose and, uh, and insulin and, you know, the less uh, obese you are. The, yeah. Yeah, then you can actually have a very mild disease. Yeah. Uh, there hasn't been a thing. Yeah, well, I think there's been a lot of other health issues too that have been sort of suppressed um, mm. because the, it hasn't been sort of the focus of the Ministry of Health in and around the virus, right? The virus has sort of escalated and other things have sort of, you know, fallen to the wayside, I guess. Uh, I mean, there was that commentary around measles on the news, right? And a lot of health practitioners were saying that, you know, their advice was to actually address measles as an issue, but Ministry of Health couldn't tackle COVID and measles at the same time. I mean, that's just one example. But I think in the natural health domain, there's a lot that, you know, we we can and, and should be doing anyway to safeguard our immunity despite COVID. While COVID's going on, there's so much we can be doing to stay yeah, healthy I, and well. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's just, it's just you know, it's almost for my own mental health recently, I've had to stop thinking about it because it's, yeah. you know, I, I just keep going down that hole and getting yeah, so me too. frustrated and it's, yeah. you know, you, you want to, you know, want to have, if you're studying well-being for your life's yeah. work, you probably want to have some well-being yourself. That's right. That's right. And sometimes that just means like not yeah. opening up media, right, and reading whatever, whatever, you know, <laughs> seeing the sort of, the, what is it, the cellular structures of COVID sort of, you yeah. know, wiggling and jiggling. Um, it's like, no thanks. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, this cold water immersion, uh, right ways and wrong ways to sort of step on, because as I said to you, I'm, and I'm feeling like a little bit of a failure because what I wanted to do was get into the shower and record in an, as an audio experience, <laughs> not, a video, <laughs> not a video experience, um, just sort of the, the, the audio experience of going cold because... There was a little plunge pool last week up in Brisbane, and I thought it was a hot pool. I was all I was desperate for a hot pool, and I went to put my toe in, and it was a jolly cold plunge pool, ice cold, and it had sort of a thermal area, and then this plunge pool, and I recoiled. I was I, I've never been so disappointed in my life that it was a cold plunge pool. Um, so I thought I'm going to do this shower, and I'm going to record this audio, and I'm going to say to Grant, I've done it, but I I haven't done it. So how do you actually sort of get started? Um, yeah, I, think, I, I tried the cold shower. I just can't do it, as I say, it's built in. So um, we live near bodies of water like creeks and the ocean and whatnot, so I just go into the ocean. Yeah. Uh, in a New Zealand winter, it's cold enough. I think if it's under 16 degrees, I think you're on. Okay. And uh, I think you spend 10 minutes there. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of dose. 
Uh, I've been as low as seven degrees in Blue Lake Rotorua. That was a pretty uh, invigorating experience. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, the reality is that the the natural response, unfettered, so without any intervention from you, is you're going to be sitting there going, this is going to be bad, and you'll jump in and your fight or flight system will, will run the whole show. Uh, and so all that's going to mean is you jump in and go, bah, bah, you completely go mad. It's a complete uh, scene and as you observed in the gym and that scene of that. Uh, but but if you can just manually override that with a bit of nose breathing, I think that... Um, and does that it, take a while? Uh, yeah, from, from my, in my experience working with people that, yeah, the first, the first time you do it, you're going to not handle it. Yeah. Um, second time you'll be pretty much okay by the third time you'll oh, be that's pretty good yeah, yeah. that's pretty good and by, the, by the fifth time but just because of the way it, it affects dopamine in your brain and dopamine's sort of slightly addictive um, you know you push dopamine goes up about two and a half fold for two and a half hours or so post this and it's such a feel good neurotransmitter um, yeah it doesn't go up that that's about the same amount it goes up after having sex, but it goes up for two and a half hours, you know. So, yeah. um, you actually you actually crave it, believe it or not. And, yeah. And so, so yeah, there's some reverse physiology working there. Yeah, as well. no, I get it. So I've got I just got a couple of questions now. Um, off the back of that, you made a couple of you made an interesting comment. I think it was on the, I think it was on your Radio New Zealand interview. Um, you said something like, get uncomfortable. You said it a couple of times, get uncomfortable. It can mean lots of things, right, for different people. It doesn't have yeah. to be cold water immersion. It's the principle of stressing your body, taking it to that next level. If you don't stress your body, it's going to unadapt because we're so good at conserving resources that you'll end up with this weak, insipid, yeah. uh, unresilient mind and body. And in many ways, I, you know, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I even sort of, think we could reconceptualize our, you know, I'm not getting to the hard clinical psychosis end of mental health, but for our mild to moderate problems that one in five of us have, you know, in many ways, ask your question, are we, are we suffering more distress and stress than we ever have, or we're just less resilient to it? Yeah. And, and, and if you don't, if you don't, if you don't have a mind and body that is able to deal with the ups and down, normal ups and downs of life, you're not going to have a great life. So, uh, you know, so if you want the great irony is if you want a comfortable, beautiful, happy life with well-being, then you're going to have to purposely seek out discomfort. Now, you wouldn't have had to do that in previous societies because they that automatically came by being alive. Yeah. Except we've engineered it so much that it doesn't exist. So we've got this sort of crisis of comfort. Yeah. And we go, oh, I sort of look at, I think particularly parenting styles where you get in and go down to the school and you're mowing down everything in your child's path so they've got no obstacles yeah. uh, is obscene. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. I, I just think this in itself is a whole topic. And mm. I, I find the dichotomies in this conversation really interesting. Um, that we have to actually go out and find it, this discomfort. Now, I mean, there's a rigour in that, and that doesn't actually suit everybody because not everybody's got the temperament to go out and find that dis level of discomfort to create that amount of stress on the body. So do you think that there's sort of an optimal, I mean, we started our conversation today by talking about 
you know, longevity and um, kind of our life force and what our optimal years are, you know, and when we're going to prosper and flourish in our lifespan and all of that. Do you think that by the time you're sort of 60, you're kind of over and out and you just don't have the willpower to kind of go out and, you know, seek and destroy stress? I mean, do you think, do you think there's a point where you just sort of tap out of all of that? Well, our society has decided that. Yeah, I mean, the idea of retirement is obscene, really. Mm. Yeah, put your feet up and cruise it. Uh, that hasn't been a thing in other indigenous societies up until now. It's like when you got to that age, you worked harder. Yeah. It's like feeling infirm, go harder. Uh, so, yeah, we've got this sort of narrative about retirement. I just, I, just, I, I just can't get this retirement thing. It's like you're doing this thing you don't really like doing, so you can't wait to stop doing it so you can do nothing. <laughs> I mean, what 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 is that around? There, there has no resemblance to anything we know about human health and well-being. Mm. So, um, so what's yeah. the what's the so you, so what you're sort of advocating is that a you do stuff you really enjoy because the concept of or the notion of yeah hanging up your boots because you hate the stuff you do at a certain and then that fixed age that parameter of you know that at sixty five yeah you sling your hook because you hated it so yeah do stuff you enjoy and then this narrative of at sixty five you're sort of washed up you finished goods um, that is a fixed paradigm is a disaster yeah. right. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, um, and, and and at every level, it's a disaster, right? You know, buying lotto tickets is a good example of this. You know, I'll, I'll be so happy if I didn't have to do anything. Mm. I mean, yeah, yeah, we know from data that that's not only not true; the exact opposite's true. Um, mm. I, I, I do talks to high school kids, and I try to go, look, guys, a high performance life and a low performance life both require are both hard, yeah. and they both require quite a lot of work. Um, you choose. You can choose. The only difference is when you do the work and the amount of control you've got over the work. For a high performance life, you you choose when you do it. It'll be earlier, uh, and and you'll have control over it. If you do a low performance life, you will do no work now. Someone else will force you to do all the work later with no control. And so, you know, even on the basis of pure laziness, you choose high performance. And and I suppose that's true as you get older. It's just like choose your hard guys. It's all hard. Mm. Uh, and and it's, you're either going to get it because you didn't choose hard early, someone yeah. else will give you hard later. It's, it's just as simple as that. It's I don't delayed. know any other option. Yeah. There's, there's no other option except for winning the lottery, and you get these unlimited free resources through some random act, and those turn out to be some of the most unhappy people of the lot. Well, they are because they don't have the you know the the knowledge or the uh, education around how to actually kind of manage all that resource, which, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories around people that have, it's sort of been the ruins of them, I, I suppose. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's right. No, it's, it's a, that, and that in itself is, a, is another really interesting rabbit hole. Um, okay, so, um, I, you know, I have sort of watched with interest your video with your swim with your dog in the winter on <laughs> Takapuna Beach and you hang and talking about hanging out at the bottom of the sea and um, the sort of the benefits um, you know are really powerful sort of psychologically around anxiety and it's okay to wear a wetsuit um, your permission to wear a wetsuit um, and yeah you can sort of start slowly and build up. Um, I, I found I found it really interesting when you talk about um, it helping with sleep, because sleep is a really big issue, right? And in, in our mm. kind of society, um, you know, you've got nutrition, you've got 
sleep, you know, sleep is uh, king, right? Nutrition is queen. Mm. So mm-hmm. you're finding that, obviously, you said it helps with your sleep, this this cold water immersion? Yeah, I think it depends on the timing. I think the, you know, if I, if I had to pick an ideal day of, you know, good fun things to do that help with your health, you might, you know, do a bit of morning exercise. Yeah. Unless for me, go for some cold water after that, eat healthily during the day. And uh, I think having... If you had exposure to a sauna or a spa or a really hot bath in the evening, I think that's probably the best outcome for sleep. You're physically tired. The cold in the morning seems to help. I think the cold in the evening will just G up. Yeah. And uh, the hot in the in the evening, I think, has probably has the most profound effect on sleep. But all three of those things together, um, you know, you're getting there. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Good advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, good to know. I've actually just recently invested in a spa pool. So yeah. that's actually good to know. Um, I personally feel real benefits from sitting in hot water. Um, it sort of seemed to sort of be my happy place. The other thing that I really uh, liked was you talking about finding joy and you say hunt the good stuff. Hunting the good stuff. You know, we're so hardwired to look for stuff that's going to hunt us or kill us. Um, you know, find joy in the simplest stuff or the simplest thing. And um, that really resonated too, that, you know, happiness is obviously a great driver and yeah. find the stuff that makes you happy, yeah? Yeah. Um, and, and I think I lost that a bit myself over the last couple of weeks. I've been concentrating on the bad stuff, but just this morning I was out walking with the dog and and it was a pretty sort of frosty morning and they, I saw this spider web with dew on it. And I was just like, that is so cool. And I stopped and looked at it and stayed there and, yeah, I just thought how cool that was. So I, I, I actually yeah. did something on that this morning. And there's, there's, yeah, you're right, we're hardwired to that negative feeling bias to see better safe than sorry, it's all bad. Um, but I suppose the other thing about that, it's normal to have negative thoughts and feelings, uh, but if you try and get rid of them, then you probably can't do that. That's not really a thing. You can't delete a thought. You can't do that. But if you wrestle with it, you'll just magnify it, like, you know, wrestling a rope with a monster on another side of the pit. It just gives the monster energy. Uh, So then you've got to think about something. So, you know, probably a a good strategy is to to displace that negative thought with a new thought that's more positive. And Mm. we don't naturally go and find those, so it's probably, uh, Mm. you know, it needs a little bit of hunting. That's why Mm. it's the hunting term. Mm. Actively, actively look. That's right. My life's awesome. Yeah, 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 and I, I, I think, I think you know, some people have degrees of inner chat. I think you yeah. know, some people kind of sort of skate through life, you know, quite suppressed, and there's not a lot of inner chat. <laughs> they probably, yeah. they probably just stew in their gut health's really bad, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and other people sort of have tons of inner chat, and it, and it, when it's noisy, it's usually an indication that something's sort of wrong mm. or brewing. Um, mm. I do think there's probably a real art. To taming that inner chat, mm. um, I don't. I don't think it's an easy thing. No, and I think using good word that it's just taming it. You're not. You're not. You're not exercising it, or you know, putting it to the block, and the negative thoughts are gone. They're there. It's just like, what do you do with them? They can go sit down the back of the mind somewhere and do what they want, but you know, they're still going to be there. Yeah. Uh, rather than than just letting them take control. So it's really the taming's a nice word, and I think I agree. It's it's not an easy thing. No, uh, but but it's a skill that you'd want to have, right? Yeah, I think I think that you need it. I think particularly in and around 
needing to be more resilient, you know, with all the things that are going on in the world at the moment and the impact just on, you know, personal and professional life. Mm. You know, we've been just in this state of flux for so long. Uh, mm. I imagine all of us have you know, felt the ramifications and our inner chat has probably, you know, the levels have kind of percolated higher than normal. Um, hey, just with um, our chat today, I want to just also touch on a little nutrition because I know this is an area mm. of expertise um, for you. So I wanted to talk about, um, you know, what the fat box and just talk a little bit about our modern diets and where it's, you know, going wrong, I guess, and what kinds of fats should we be eating and, um what fats, you know, we shouldn't, you know, should we not be afraid of and why are we eating so many carbs? And there's, you know, a lot of hidden carbs and a lot of knowledge that we don't have around those hidden carbs. Um, and then we can move on to talking about sugar and inflammation. So um, should we start with the fats? Um, what sorts of fats, you know, are okay, say, you know, to eat? What do you well, think? I, well, my basic template on food has been uh, if the food was recently alive in nature. You know, it could be running, flying, swimming, growing underground, above ground, whatever. Then that's a template for food. So that's whole food. I, I use the term human interference, low in hum, human interference. And I suppose the opposite of that is what you see if you go down to the local grocery store and you just wander past people and I don't know if people do this, but surreptitiously glance at the person you're walking past and look at their trolley and you're like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> it's full of ultra-processed food. Um, and, and, yeah, that's about 70 to 80% of what's sold at supermarkets is mm. ultra-processed. So, uh, yeah, that's the mismatch, right? Humans are evolved to eat actual food, food that would, was recently alive, and we're, we're far from that. So so that's an interesting thing. So if you had to choose fats, then, you know, fats as they naturally occur in plants and animals, I think, are, are fine as they're naturally, unnaturally produced by large-scale chemistry experiments to, I don't know, extract oil from, I don't know, rice, rice bran or something. So, you know, these are, are you know, less stable vegetable oils. I'm not a fan of those. So so I'm a, a, a fan of, of, of fats as they occur in nature and um, plants and animals. So that could be in avocados or uh, meats or fishes or whatever. Yeah. We, we obviously know specific things around benefits around you know, fish oils and, omega-3s and those sorts of things. Those are you know, definitely a fat to mm. uh, favour. Uh, and I think you know, unreasonably we've ended up with healthy eating guides from governments and whatnot that have pushed us towards you know, highly processed industrial seed oils. And I'm, I'm not a fan of those. I think they're probably inflammatory. Uh, and you know, they, they're really an ultra-processed food by definition. So mm. anything unprocessed, I think it's where I'm, where I'm basically at with food. What what are your thoughts on lab meats? I think it's a sort of sick joke, isn't it? <laughs> the um, the... <laughs> I love it straight out there well, with it. It's great. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, we're like gonna... they call it clean meat, the future of meat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. The fact that we've got too many people on the planet and we don't have proper ways of farming or living is a separate issue from the health effects of your whole unprocessed food and to start manufacturing more. Hot ultra-processed food, either from uh, vegetables in the first place or through growing it in a lab. I mean, it's just biggest belief so far as I can, I'm concerned. I don't think the nutritional profile from a macro nutrient profile has been done yet. 
Um, anyway, I mean, I, I mean that will probably come, but I mean there is obviously a fair amount of conversation around, you know, I guess meat as we know it becoming less and less over time, and it being sort of smaller portions, better cuts for the average consumer. Um, and us moving more into, I guess, these lab-grown meats um, as the sort of agriculture, the complexity of agriculture and farming um, and, you know, CO2 and, you know, greenhouse gases becomes more of an issue with, with um, you know, the, the, the world's ever-ongoing issues, right? So... Uh, yeah. I think I think it's an interesting conversation, right? Because obviously yeah. it's going to have a really big impact on our nutritional um, gains and our health yeah. and wellness. So, so do you sort of have any thoughts on that? Is it something that you talk about at AUT with your students? Oh uh, uh, yeah, well, in the nutritional yeah, so space. I'm always crapping on about it. I think you know I probably get a bit beyond my expertise as soon as we start talking about you know carbon emissions and sequestration and all that sort of yeah. Stuff, but sustainability, like, is it a topic? Well, you know? yes, it's definitely a topic. I mean, I, I, I feel that. Well, first of all, I think that you know, whole unprocessed meat, I frankly regard it as a health food. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's, there's, that's become increasingly untrendy. It's become not mm. a thing. Mm. Um, you know, processed meat is still not for processed food. So yeah, whatever. Uh, agree with that. That uh, this idea of how we farm. I'm not a huge expert on regenerative agriculture, but the idea of rotating crops and uh, animals of various sorts through different cycles and actually being able to sequest carbon and have a net gain seems to be, you know, have some go in it. You know, feedlot farming, as you see in the US, or just the atrocious way that we farm uh, chickens and and pigs in this country, I I mean, it's repulsive. Yeah. Uh, And we need to do something about that. Mm, yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, you don't have any issues with the meat itself or no, the future no, of meat. No, 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 no. No, well, especially when you replace it with ultra-processed food. Mm. I mean, of course, the argument is that it's all controlled and, um, you know, it's all controlled. So they, they, they're yeah. saying, you know, those scientists are saying that it's so controlled and so clean that they wouldn't call it processed in, in the way that I guess you're, you're <laughs> calling it processed. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, really I mean, it's yeah. a very – it is obviously a very sort of different narrative. What about yeah. uh, sugar and inflammation? What are your thoughts about sugar? I mean, it's very difficult to be completely sugar-free, right? I mean, I'm not talking about the sugar in carrots and the sugar in yeah. – <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the sugar and uh, veggies. Yeah, we're talking about yeah, fr- free sugar or added sugar. Yeah, 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 just the, to be clear. The pure white and deadly, deadly stuff just to start The with. white stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's just a food that's crept in. Mm. I mean, it obviously tastes great. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, you know, one level it's addictive to, you know, more so to some people than others. Is, but I think that's Do you think that's the case? I think, well, I think it depends. I mean, you think, well, I'm not addicted to it, therefore it's not addicted. It's a bit of a a fallacy, a fallacy I think. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that end up taking drugs. I'm not suggesting you do this, but not everyone who does methamphetamine, and I'm, I'm certainly not condoning that, not everyone gets addicted yeah. um, because we're wired differently. Right. Um, a whole lot of people do, and it's a very powerfully addictive drug, and it causes untold harm, so... 
just get that straight. But yeah. But but you know, so some people don't get particularly to the sugar. Some people it takes over their life. So I think that's a thing. Okay. So you think some um, people might be have a predisposition to sort of white sugar? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, and, and those people know who they are. They stop doing it, and you get all the classic signs of withdrawal. Uh, other people stop, and they seem to be fine. Mm. Uh, but anyway, the the, the pathways inflammation. I, I think there's sort of three. I, I talk about this, the trilogy of things going on is that uh, you know, sugar when it's high in your blood. Uh, causes a thing called glycation, so it attaches itself. The sugar, the glucose molecule, attaches itself to proteins, which is all your tissues, and renders them damaged. So they've got advanced glycated end products. So now that's a problem. The problem with that is that those tissues are now inflamed. Uh, also, if you're eating a lot of sugar, then you're probably burning a lot of sugar for fuel yeah. rather than fat. Yeah. Um, the process of burning sugar is more. Uh, creates more reactive oxygen species and reactive oxygen species then cause inflammation. So you've got this sort of trilogy of every which way of uh, inflammation, glycation, and oxidative stress, and, and sugar causes those problems. And if you wanted to think about the, the root of modern chronic disease, you know, the things that will get 85% of us, cancer, diabetes, yeah. heart disease, dementia, these sorts of things, uh, it's the trilogy of, metabolic trilogy of, Inflammation, glycation, oxidative stress. That's right. So, yeah, people reformulate or get the sugar down, but it's, yeah, I don't think it's a food that's really fit for normal human consumption. Unfortunately, you make a good point. We're in a world where it's ubiquitous Mm. uh, and it tastes nice. Mm. So, you know, you probably, we're not going to get the sugar police coming anytime soon. No. Uh, no. So yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that mm. in, in public health. How we get people to eat less sugar? Yeah, I mean, there's been talk of you know laying taxes on you know fizzy drinks and things like that, but I just I just don't know if that's actually going to happen. What do you think about um, you know the keto lifestyle and other lifestyles, similar lifestyles? <laughs> well, I'm a fan of them because I you know I think it, it gives yeah. you some rules. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons you can have rules around food. You know, mm. like you can have a religion. Uh, and and people who have religious rules around food, you know, mm. it could be you know, two weeks a year of Hindu fasting or Ramadan or yeah, uh, uh, you, know, you know, various plant based ones. They actually do tend to be better because you've got a, you've got some containment about what you're eating, mm. uh, which is great. But yeah, you know, if you're not in a religion, which most of us aren't, uh, then it's a free for all. Yeah. So you can try and think some containment around your food and. Uh, I think something like a keto or a low-carb lifestyle, you identify with that. Um, you understand that most of the time you want to eat whole food. Mm. You're going to limit your starchy and ultra-processed mm. carbohydrates. At least yeah. puts a decent framework. It's got good evidence yeah. for it. You don't, you don't, you don't think, though, that there's like some long-term benefits by eating a high-fat kind of diet over time? Like keto? Yeah, I, th- I think we've probably moved away from the idea of high-fat and just gone, you know, Restrict the carbohydrates a yeah. bit more, but that's where the problem is. You naturally end up with some more fats, but don't go and seek it out. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. There's, there's certainly health benefits from doing that, and I think there's, you know, I, I would always make a good argument that that if you're more insulin resistant or you're someone who has trouble controlling their blood glucose, you're a bit more of a moody, emotional eater. Then you know, just just doing this keto type thing and having a bit of a self experiment with it can have some real benefits and yeah uh, before you criticize it have a go at it yeah and and see how it affects you if it's not for you that's fine but but if if 
if you have no frame around what you eat. Yeah. No constraints. Uh, no constraints. Well, well, yeah. well, well, a classic no constraints, but I've got constraints argument. So I'm, I'm all for a balanced diet. And, and you know, so far as I can tell, that often means that you're talking about, well, I'll just eat whatever I like um, when I feel like it. Sometimes I'll try and sometimes I'll just eat whatever I like and I'll justify that with the term balanced diet. So I, I don't think that has any specificity around constraints. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, anything with constraint uh, is good. Anything that's more whole food with constraints even better. Mm. Anything that's more whole food and limiting starch and uh, other carbohydrates, if you're insulin resistant, is probably a good thing. Mm, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, you did touch on sort of the public health um, messaging. How do you sort of get the wider health messaging more efficient for wider good? Um you know, how do we sort of maintain health view as a society? Um, you know, what what can the government do, I guess? What messaging? I mean, and, and this is part of what you do as an educator, right, is how do you sort of, I guess, responsibly kind of educate your students at AUT to kind of go out into the community and make a difference, right? So where the lives of New Zealanders are more positively impacted, whether it's, to do with high performance or yeah. uh, living less sedentary lives or eating cleaner or just living better lives or just understanding what wellness means on a, on a, in a day-to-day context, right? So are you, what sort of work are you doing in that space? Well, I, I've, I've been, I think the work that needs to be done in this so that no one's done yet and we should do it is the way public health messaging has gone is we've, we've generally gone for the set the bar as low as we possibly think we could and hope that the people who are worse will jump onto it. You know, do 30 minutes of anything a day, do 10-minute blocks, you know, gentle gardening will do the job. Uh, you know, just eat some more fruits and vegetables, for God's sake. That, that's the extent of it. Um, we're, we're obviously, in reality, the dose response is much more complicated than that. That's not optimal. That's just getting off the couch or making some effort. Yeah. And, and actually, the fitter you get, and there's more subtle pieces of that to do with you know doing some resistance, doing some intensity, and so on. There's, there's just gain benefits, and they're quite linear up to a point, uh, actually. So you keep gaining, um, and the same is true with food. You can eat some more fruit and veg, fine, but actually there's, there's you know more and more complex information, and we've been really reluctant to try and make that information complicated for the public at all. And so we don't really know what would happen if we started to get a bit better at it. Uh, at communicating messages and you know, mm. the question is you, you've got cancer you turn up to cancer and your oncologist actually goes look actually mostly an oncologist is going to say I'm not going to mention diet to them because I don't think they'll do anything anyway yeah. which I think is appalling yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think they should be presenting them with all of the options including the best case scenario even though it's hard you know, and for some people that might include things like fasting during their chemotherapy there's, you know, there's evidence for that Mm. Uh, so, so, but, but it's we don't know the answer to this yet, and no one's really looked at it. And I, I think we should, and, and I'd like to do more of that. It's like, yeah, you know, what happens with people when you put them with more complex messages? We tell them about doing some harder stuff. Does it just get all too hard and they do nothing, or actually, for a percentage of them, do they do better? Or can we can we screen them out for coming through? It's like well, you're the sort of person who would respond very well. Yeah. To a more a more complicated yeah. message, and actually, we're going to we're going to give that to you. Yeah. Do you, so you just don't think that's happening at all. No, we've just gone for the lowest, you know, yeah. the, the exercise 30 minutes a day is a good example. I mean, if you just did 30 minutes a day of 
very moderate activity where you, there's some benefits, but it's hardly the optimal dose. Pulling out some daffodils. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you get some benefits from that, but but yeah, you, you're not going to get, you're not as well, you know, you, there's still substantial difference between that person and someone who actually is quite fit. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you're really, what you're saying is there's sort of a lot of catering for the lowest common denominator, but there's not really a lot of sort of ramping up and, you know, there's not that sort of stretched, targeted sort of approach in the public health, no. health messaging. No, but then, you know, we, we, we can do it in medicine. We're showing that. It's like, you know, you look mm. at surgeries and there's this complexity or that complexity or, you know, an operation or, mm. you know, other treatments and doses of chemo and, and you know, other pharmacological things. There's, there's all sorts of different, you know, uh, personalisation and sophistry around that. So, we, you know, we can do it. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, the difficulty of this is, is behavioural. So, you know, people need to actually do it. Do you think it's because the majority of the population are just stressed and busy and their receptivity is at an all-time low? Suppose that's definitely an advantage. It's a bit of a catch twenty two, though, isn't it? Because the more, the less you do of these healthy behaviours, the more you yeah. end up being that that population. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was still we're still created a world where there's a mismatch. You know, we're, I, I know. I still back to the mental health thing. I find it appalling that we can have one of the highest youth suicide rates in the mm -hmm. world. Our, overall mental health is about as bad as it gets in a developed country. Mm. Um, and we have no real way of addressing that. It's like, well, yeah, we're a reasonably wealthy country. Mm. Come on, people. That's right. Yeah, there's sort of a systemic sort of problem there. Um, just but, moving into the aspirational, I'm just interested, I mean, who do you follow? Who, who sort of fuels your tank in that wellness space? Yeah, I, I, I heard you might ask me that, and I was um, been thinking about that. So... I think it's changed over the years where I get things from. I, um, initially, my inspiration was a guy, Professor Tim Noakes, who's a South African uh, professor and medical doctor who really got the low-carb space going and pioneered the first, you know, to, to be unconventional about that. Um, he's still a friend of mine, and I mm. you know, highly regard him. Uh, I, I do generally admire people that I think... Uh, have a curiosity around the world, so that could be anyone. But, but I, I talked earlier about a neurologist. So I know Dr. Matthew Phillips. Uh, you know, I've only actually met him a couple of times at Waikato Hospital. But you know, there's some seriously smart people uh, in New, New Zealand medicine. So I really admire him. In terms of following people, uh, Peter Atia is a doctor in the. US who has the Drive podcast, but it really gets my level of science and longevity and health going. He, when his his questioning is really at a fairly detailed medical level, people might or might not like that, but I really um, like that sort of stuff. And then other heroes, I I don't know, I, these um, never met the guy, but I like his podcasts and books. But Malcolm Gladwell, uh, uh, with his revisionist history. Yeah. Podcast and his, you know, his books, David and Goliath and stuff. I, I, I just love it when people will almost think of an explanation exactly the opposite of conventional wisdom and actually provide evidence that it actually could turn out to be right. Yeah, uh, and I really love his way of thinking for that. Yeah, are you collaborating yeah. um, with anybody just locally here on any sort of interesting projects? Uh, we've got a pretty big. Team, so they're collaborating across a bunch of things. We've just been funded to do uh, a 
take our diabetes reversal with our low-carb approach into, more into primary care. So that's been a big grant we've got. Wow. Um, the current GP of the year is Ben Davies and the current runner for GP of the year is uh, Lily Fraser and they're both on that project with Karen Zinn who's a uh, professor at AT as well. Mm. Um, I just... Okay. We've just got I've just got some just on something completely different. We've just been funded by Movember, the mm. men's health charity international, to yeah. with, with to do a whole bunch of work around well being and fire and emergency in New Zealand. Ah, yep. Uh, which is really totally different thing than the diabetes, but it's really an interesting thing that you know, the exposure to trauma and yes. whatnot in that job and and their you know, emotional yeah. numbing with alcohol, the lack of healthy behaviours. Yeah, and- I saw an interview that you had uh, taken with a, with one of the senior firefighters and yeah. his experience with trauma. Yeah, I, yeah. S- I saw yeah. that. Yeah, so I've just got interested in the whole sort of trauma-informed approach in psychology, which is, yeah, you know, might seem a bit distant from glucose tolerance, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I sort of like to do those things. Well, it does kind of speak to your interest in psychology, right? Yeah, well, I'm interested in humans and what makes them well. Yeah. Uh, and so it could be metabolic or it could be psychological or anything. Well, it's probably also very overlooked. I mean, if you think about what the New Zealand police and the and New Zealand fire, the firefighters actually see every day, I mean, I think it's good work that you're doing and I think those stories are going to be probably pretty impactful. Yeah, yeah I'm really excited about that. And, yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that uh, being funded, did you say, by Movember? Yeah, Movember has been really interesting to work with. I've actually ended up taking on a role with them in mental health as well. Ah, okay. um, but but uh yeah, just when uh I, I think it's a you know women have been by and large better at advocating for their health mm. and doing that and movember has been a really good mm. uh charity to come out of that and you know they've raised a lot of money over the years so yeah. hopefully they get a bit more for that that yeah. group. So that's yeah. good because you do sort of you did sort of touch on there being a lot of really good local talent here in New Zealand, and so oh yeah, just, we're so good. Yeah, just but piqued my interest, you know, <laughs> as to what you might be sort of working on at the moment, just yeah. sort of locally, uh, because yeah. I mean, obviously, we can achieve a lot through Zoom, but it's always nice to know what we're sort of doing locally, sort of yeah. on a grassroots level. Um, Excellent. So, I mean, I guess my, my closeout question being sort of a practical creature, for anybody listening who wants to make a start on improving their health, Grant, just hit me up with two top tips. Now, that's going to be really hard for you just to just like narrow it down. How do they begin their journey today? They go, right, I need to get on this journey, this health journey today. I'm either a sedentary person or I'm somebody who just needs to make some some key changes. What are the two things that they can do today? I think tuning your diet is like the priority, no matter what else you're doing, no matter what else you're doing. If you're eating ultra-processed food, then it's not going to end well. So Mm. if you're going to tune your diet up, um, that's great. You can either, and I think there's two ways of doing this. You can make subtle small changes over a long time, um, and that will suit some personalities. These are the sorts of people who go, oh, I've got two, you know, it takes us two weeks to get through our dark chocolate. Whereas actually um, there's another whole group that I think should can just embrace hard, rapid change and yeah. deal with it. Um, yeah. you know, like, uh, and I'm in that category. Right. So so I do that with my diet. So decide which cat you're in with the, with the diet and yeah, go hard or make some small changes, but you've got to do something. Yeah. Uh, and then the same goes with exercise. I think is fitness as medicine is like a complete no-brainer. Uh, if you're not moving, uh, then what do you mean fitness as medicine? Like you just see it like medicine. 
well, it has it has a has benefits. More profound, has more profound effects on, than any other medicine. So, okay. uh, yeah, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, even if you don't enjoy it, uh, then there's benefits from things like I, I sometimes get to work by bike by forcing myself to do it. I, I don't even like it. Yeah, um, but it's. I'd do it, and yeah. it's fine. Take um, a dose. Take a dose. Take a, so just take a dose, and it's a bit like cleaning my teeth, riding to work. Yeah. There's other exercise that I love, but riding to work I don't love. Mm. But you know, this easy way to spend some time. So I think I think those are the top two. Okay. Um, and and if you're already doing those, then then the next tip is, it, so those don't apply to you. The next, as you said, is get out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, create some more discomfort in a in a productive way. And, yeah, there's lots of ways to do that through hot, cold, uh, and so Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, I mean, those are three really good, you know, and they're all, like, pretty big triggers like that. It's going to be, you know, those those people are going to be people that really do want change, right? They're not softly yeah. softlies. They're, they're three really proactive uh, things that could be done to make change. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's no pussyfooting around. It's like it's go hard or go home, really. Yeah. <laughs> With you. Well, I, I think we overlook that in health, and it's just like actually sometimes you can just go hard and it'll be fine. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I like it. It's old school, yeah. but I like it. It's really yeah. good. Hey, thanks very much, Grant. It's been really great to talk with you today. Oh, thanks for having me. I've learned some great stuff, and it's just been an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you for tuning in. The AdSource podcast has a community of over 5,000 listeners worldwide, and we would love to hear from you. If you would like to support the show, please give us a rating and review, or get in touch via email in the show notes to give us feedback, or just say hi. Don't let the seasons impact your health. Take control and weather the storm with Power Pollen's 100% potentiated bee pollen. Head over to naturebee.com to find out how you can support your everyday health today. At Source Podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.